Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Ego and Carlos Tennis Show. This is episode 15. We're recording this after the year-end championships. NITO ATP finals is over. And there's a lot to talk about. And joining me as always is Damien Kust. Damien, how are you? Uh, yeah, I'm fine. It was definitely a fun group stage at the ATP finals. And then maybe a little bit underwhelming in the end because everyone thought, you know, the best lineup ever, the top four players in the world. And of course that hasn't changed. But I mean, Novak Djokovic was just so excellent that he kind of left us with a couple of disappointing matches, at least, of course, you know, from, from the perspective of the other players. And yeah, let's let's chat Alcaraz. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely agree that this, that going in, this was this was one of the stronger lineups that we've seen at the ATP Finals. Definitely, if you compare it to last year, uh, this this field was definitely stronger. Oh yeah. So I guess it, yeah, yeah, it definitely makes it impressive what what Djokovic was able to do in the end and just kind of put the youngsters in their place, if you like, <laughs> uh, just you know cement himself as clearly by far still the best player in the world, uh, going into going into next year. But as far as Alcaraz is concerned, uh. I think it was a net positive week for him actually getting to the semifinals here, um, especially just how he started out started out in the in, in the first match, you know, sort of t- commenting about the how fast the conditions are and how we don't have any other tour event like this one, you know, leading into the finals where it's even comparable in court speed. It's like by far the fastest event on the main tour at least, you know, um, on the tour. It's kind of a throwback. 90s type of court where it's just lightning quick right so i think i think just getting him getting used to that was uh was a challenge in and of itself but i actually thought he served extremely well that's like the one positive thing if you want to take away from alcaraz's four matches is in is in all of them he just served very accurately very uh the the spot serving was so much better and it was you know just allowing him to like i guess open up and play more free tennis especially the last two matches in the group stage so if we're talking about positives i guess that would be it for me yeah, I think he showed that in the long run, you know, he's definitely not going to be a player that every single year at the ATP finals, we're just going to say, yeah, these aren't courts he likes, he probably won't do well. I think he will have his shots at the at the title, uh, probably not this year, well, obviously not this year, probably not next year, but like, yeah, there is a chance for Carlos Alcaraz to be a factor in this event, he certainly was, he just ran into the machine that Novak Djokovic was in the semifinals. Uh, but as a whole, I think he showed that he can adapt very quickly. He did the same on grass this year. Uh, he did the mm-hmm. same on a few occasions probably already in his career. But that, of course, is like the most recent one where he just barely beats Artur Nindernach at Queens. He gets a few more matches in. He actually wins Queens and Wimbledon, right? He was undefeated on grass yep. this year, which is pretty wild to think about given how we just sort of like had the idea that he might be good, good on grass, but well, didn't know that he could do it to this extent and go undefeated. And of course, the next gen final, the next gen finals, the ATP finals weren't quite as good. But I think, yeah, given the opening match against Zverev, certainly lots of progress in the next ones. The serving all week was actually excellent. And this was probably the main thing going for him as well against Djokovic. Uh, that was like the 10 or however many aces he had. And all these ones, uh, like the JJ Wolf serve <laughs> slider on the outside. I think it was uh, it was a, it was a really fantastic performance in that regard. He started well, like 15 minutes. You know, the first 15 minutes he was really on fire and actually putting Djokovic under pressure. But then, of course, it all dried out. Um, Novak just sort of shrinking the court for him, making the margins so slim, forcing Carlos to come up with all this shot selection that you know on the day he kind of got lost in a few on a few occasions. Of course, not taking his breakpoints was also pretty big. But yeah, as a whole. 
uh, it's it's maybe even kind of wild that you know the first serve was his biggest asset in that match. That's not usual for Carlos, and that's not usual, yeah. I guess, in a match against Novak Djokovic. But that's kind of what it was. Um, you know, the last three matches that they played against each other, Cincinnati, Wimbledon, US um, ATP Finals, it was actually like that where Alcaraz outserves Novak, which is an interesting point for the future because in the final against Cedar Djokovic, serving was like so much better. Than, than in the semifinals, probably the only like huge improvement in this regard, because of course of bo- bo- both uh, performances were just ridiculous. But yeah, um, I was, I guess, a little underwhelmed with the semi. After the group stage, I got wooed by how Alcaraz played against Rublev and Medvedev. I thought that, okay, this might be a very close match. He should give Djokovic a rough challenge. I was actually thinking that Sinner could be more dangerous to Alcaraz than Djokovic on these courts. Just because, um, yeah, in the in the matchup against Sinner, he was just struggling to contain that wild offense from Yannick in the first place. Whereas with Djokovic, it was a completely different story, a completely different dynamic. It was actually Alcaraz trying to attack and just running into that ridiculous depth from from Novak. Which, if you're such an attacking player, you know, as Sinner as Alcaraz, and someone is hitting at your feet constantly, of course, it's going to be hard for you to, um, yeah, control the points to stay on top. You're going to try to maybe take more risks. You're going to try to make some weird choices, like the, the slice approach that he had in the second set, for example, or the, the approach on one of the breakpoints, right? The the one where sort of the match was lost in a way. And um, yeah, it, it's just something that Djokovic forced him to do. But overall, I think even before the ATP finals, we said that uh, it doesn't really matter what Alcaraz will do here in regards to his 2024 uh, so I think go, getting out of the group stage is already in plus. Like it's it, it's already a, a decent feat. It was his ATP Finals debut. I think you know we couldn't really expect more, much more. And it's good that after the first performance, he was able to just adjust, adapt, and actually produce some very good tennis. Yeah, I, I like what you I like the point that you made about Djokovic's depth and how it was able to. Uh you know, really kind of uh, make the match on his terms because, yeah. you know, it did. It doesn't always look like that Djokovic is necessarily hitting the ball hard, but it's the depth that absolutely kills you in on these courts. Um, you know, he's become such a good spot server and you combine that with his, with just, you know, how deep and constantly at your feet he's getting these returns back that, you know, no other player really can, can really do realistically and how he's just able to, you know, up the forehand speed. Like we saw in Australia, he was hitting his forehand really big, bigger than bigger than than most matches but that's also because his leg was compromised and he was struggling physically um but but here he actually did it like he up the he up the risk profile and there was just there's just not many players there's just no one on the tour that can really contend with him you know when when he's playing at that sort of level and serving this well so i think um uh, rather than seeing it yeah i, I was a little bit underwhelmed at the game that alcaraz played at 3-4 in the first set because up until that point he was at least you know he was the one that had the couple of break chances uh, he'll be disappointed in the fact that the four breakpoint chances that he had in the match, in three of those four points, he was actually, you know, in the rally and he had he had a chance to do something with it. Uh, but it just, it never really materialized. And he had, I, I mean, he ended up hitting more winners. I mean, and a lot of that is the aces. So like 21 winners, 21 unforced errors, 10 of those are aces. Um, and really that's what kind of made it a close, that's what really kind of made it a close match for six or seven games. And then we saw we saw Alcaraz really play ignite and play two fantastic points. Uh, and in the game, the Djokovic was up a yeah. break three, two in the, in the second, actually we saw that in both the center and the Alcaraz matches, the, 
game that Djokovic was able to get out of from 3-2, 15-40. Of course, Sinner ended up winning one more game after that uh, in, in a game that took 16 minutes and Alcaraz, uh, you know, uh, Alcaraz wasn't able to get it done. But um, yeah, uh, you know, obviously there was this one, re- there was two ridiculous points in the Djokovic-Alcaraz match, the 30-40 point uh, at at three two, where sort of Alcaraz was the one dictating. He he, he sort of had it on his own terms. He was moving Djokovic around on a string, and he he basically hits this forehand approach, but it's like a delayed approach, so he doesn't fully commit. And then Djokovic just kind of stays home, anticipates where Alcaraz is going, and then comes up with a very good forehand cross court pass. Um, but so so that's maybe maybe the point in time where you felt like oh this could have actually become a match, and if he wins that point then, you know, maybe we could be sitting here having a very different discussion. We never know, of course, but, um, you know, so I think the scoreline, 3-6-2-6, kind of very misleading yeah. uh, in, in in some ways. But, yeah, uh, I, I mean, Alcaraz also just really, you know, said after the match that he he thought that Djokovic was... Uh, was just was just playing absurdly well and that he, he he's he's not at his level right now and he's, you know, far away from... <laughs> And, and and then he said he's not going to look at Cincinnati. He's not going to look at Wimbledon or Roland Garros. He's just going to zone in on this match in the offseason and just uh, see what he can try to do and do do it better, basically. So, yeah, he's he's known to obviously be very uh, critical of himself after these, these losses uh, and be very kind of honest in his admissions in a way that uh, not many players are willing to do. So, um, yeah, that can be seen as a... a Definitely a, a positive, and he's not going to be playing any tournaments from now until the Australian Open. So he's going to go into the Australian Open without a warm up, but that also means a little bit longer of an off season. And actually, he will get a look at Djokovic again because they're playing an exhibition in Saudi Arabia at the end of December. So I guess just more sort of data gathering. But I'm curious. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because I've seen two takes kind of just float around Twitter lately. The one take is that this match that they played in Cincinnati just kind of ruined Alcaraz's uh, his psyche and his mental, uh, you know, I guess resistance in this in this match, and that contributes to the subpar end of the last season. That I think is a little bit of a stretch, in my opinion. Um, but the other take I've also seen is that maybe Alcaraz should try to distance himself from Djokovic a little bit, in the sense that they're playing a lot of practice sets against each other, and like for instance, they played a practice set or practice, you know, a set and a half in uh, in Turin. And they also practice before the Paris Masters. And he's constantly been talking about obviously getting to number one, chasing the number one and trying to beat Djokovic. And obviously all the questions and all the kind of hype around it is all centered around Alcaraz and Djokovic because of this international intergenerational clash that we're seeing of 16 years in age. And, you know, we see, we, we talked about it before that this is something really rare on the men's side. We basically have not seen it. Um, in in open era history to to this extent, where the older player is just you know not really you know still at the very much the peak of his power, if you like, and uh, so so I just wonder if this if this is ending up helping Djokovic a lot more than it is actually helping Alcaraz, and if Alcaraz should be you know distancing himself a little bit from from this rivalry and just thinking about Novak all the time. Those are just two other things that I've read about on on Twitter. So. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just always thought that the the Cincinnati thing that this final destroyed Carlos is just such a weird take. Um, I I feel like we haven't yeah. really seen that. We have seen enough ridiculous tennis from from that point onwards from him. That yeah, I just don't really get that at all. 
I mean, the way he was playing in the US Open until the semis, the way he was playing in um, some Shanghai matches even. And um, yeah, I, I just don't really believe in that. I think maybe the Safiurin laws also started people like, you know, made people think about it. I guess mm. you and me both, we just never really considered it that much of an issue that he's yeah. losing to Roman Safiulin indoors in his first match after, well, um, some physical issues. So yeah, generally I haven't really bought into that. <laughs> Definitely not. When it comes to like the mindset of yeah rivalry with Djokovic and sort of maybe people sometimes painting it for you know the goat against the future goat. Of course, yeah, yeah that's not really the way I'm thinking about it. You know, it, it's tough enough to get to like 15 slams, let alone 24. Um, I, it's not really a realistic goal for Alcaraz to get to 24 slams. Like if that would come up at some point, well, great, right? I mean, that's amazing for him. But yeah, it, it's not really the way I see it. I don't think Carlos and his team also would uh, would really think about it like that. But I think, um, yeah, there could be a bit more pressure that, I mean, there definitely is more pressure that he feels in these matchups, perhaps especially at the at the Ron Garros, right? When they played and he sort of, he was the big favorite for the bookies, for the public, and I think that also played into his, his mind a little bit there. And definitely the matches between him and Djokovic, they feel different, they feel bigger for everyone, really, and for him as well. Um, so yeah, it would be, I guess, I don't know, you know, what what the situation is right now, but it would be pretty cool for him for sure and and helpful to uh, not look at it as like an Alcaraz Djokovic type of deal. I mean, we are the best two players in the world. Every single match of ours is grand. Um, maybe actually Sinner can help with that, right? Because if if Sinner becomes like a threat for majors, then it becomes a bit of a freeway, and maybe there's Rune as well. And it's not like Alcaraz Djokovic anymore. And, and that's like the only match that matters. Whereas for, for some parts of the year, I guess that's kind of how it was. Cincinnati, Wimbledon, Ron Garros, US Open as well, because, you know, that, that was the final that everyone wanted. That was the final that everyone predicted. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's kind of hard to, to um, say how Alcaraz, of course, you know, perceives it but uh, certainly not maybe looking at it like this, like the only match that matters is my, is me against Djokovic. That would be helpful. And uh, yeah, maybe with the other competitors being stronger, which it seems like at least Sinner should be getting stronger in 2024. We'll see if Medvedev will be contending for, for major titles and, and the other guys. But um, but yeah, um, there definitely has have been instances where he felt a lot more pressure in the... Djokovic matchup and that's probably uh, because it just seems so grand and like historical basic almost you know it has so much importance in in uh in in um currently in the sport and like in the way it's sort of built up um I I guess I'm trying to find a conclusion here and I don't really have one <laughs> I don't even know yeah, towards I, I, I guess what I'm think, going to I, I think maybe you didn't understand the 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 question quite I, I guess I'm I'm not saying in terms of how he looks at the rivalry or like uh-huh. in terms of in terms of looking ahead like the slams and the the uh, and not like underestimating someone in the draw I meant more like as in like should he be practicing with him you know before every tournament should he be you know this this close and this friendly I, I guess I, I mean I mean mm-hmm. that part is kind of cool to see but should he be like because normally you don't see rivals that are like one and two in the world really like 
sharing everything with each other like in in, mm. in this in this way and get you know getting a lot more in info because like he practiced with him in Paris he practices with him before the ATP finals and by the way a practice that wasn't really that close he lost 6-1 and I mean it doesn't really matter it's practice but still like um but still like maybe do you think there's a bit of an edge there that he's giving to Novak by by doing this uh, yeah that, that that's perhaps fair. showing I, him yeah I I think I lost my attention for a moment earlier and that's <laughs> that's why I, I I definitely went in a different direction from here um no, yeah, it, it, it's tough to say. I mean, people definitely, uh, I've seen it happen where they say, you know, you're too friendly with your rivals or you, you have to like just sort of want to kill them in order to beat them, right? And I think it's an yeah. individual uh, thing. Um, has Novak really been ever like very friendly with his rivals? Probably not, right? No. Yeah, that's that's why not... this is a little bit rare because it's like, yeah. you know, they they seem a lot closer to each other and in terms of, I don't know if that's helpful for him. Is what is what I'm saying. Like, if it's if it's beneficial for him to, mm-hmm. or or yeah. whether he should keep more of a distance. It's hard to say. I guess Federer and Nadal is the like the main friendship on the tour, right? Like when we have yes, but know, but still, the they rivals. never really practice with each other. They practice. Yeah, with they each didn't. Other maybe yeah, once, no, they didn't. You know? Right. So, so maybe that's. Uh, maybe... And it was also later in their careers that they became such good friends. Not not like at the beginning of it. Not like at the beginning of their rivalry. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting guess, thing to think about. I, I don't really know what the answer is, really. Yeah. And then I guess, do you think, like, in terms of the mental edge that he had, uh, obviously winning that Wimbledon final and then just the the epic nature of how the third set unfolded in their Cincinnati clash and, the, you know, the fact that he had championship point, it looked like, you know, he was the stronger player for a set and a half and and then just played one really poor game to get it back to level terms and then all of a sudden we had an epic is is that mindset shift something that might plague him a long time in these in, in in this rivalry going forward in in terms of building scar tissue or is it more just every match is unique, every match is different? Uh, how can I learn from this loss, onto the next one? I guess in terms of the next time he plays Djokovic, not necessarily mm-hmm. in terms of yeah. you know the, his results before that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I still don't really buy into that theory that the Cincinnati final has some major impact in the long run. Uh, but of course, yeah. you know, it's 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 the first time he played Novak since then. And I don't think, you know, Alcaraz lost this much because of any pressure that he felt. Um, I yeah. would like to think that the next time they play, he just enters it as he did at Wimbledon. Like he enters mm-hmm. it thinking that he, he, sh- he might win, that he has a chance and that all the other matches really that they had before don't matter. Because I guess in the long run, they, they shouldn't. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I I still am not really. I I just think Alcaraz played far too well since Cincinnati, despite not picking up any titles, to to yeah. to to for me to think that this has actually hampered him a lot in the long run. And um, yeah, I'm super excited for the next Djokovic Alcaraz, and I hope that they're just well, especially Alcaraz, because we know that Novak is gonna bring it mentally. I mean, he is so experienced and he is just so good at this uh, psychological aspect of the game as well. But that Alcaraz is just gonna be like, yeah. I mean, ATP Finals. It was super hard, super fast conditions. It was my first time there. Like, why would I, you know, yeah. take something from that loss? That's not really, um, yeah, just lesson. That's just a lesson learned. Yeah, and the advantage is that we have seen Alcaraz kind of. He is a very quick learner, in the sense he does. He does tend to learn a lot from his losses, and 
kind of um, apply what he didn't do so well and study it. And, you know, they're going to look at this really hard, obviously, uh, you know, a match like this. Yeah. And that maybe in the next couple of years, two or three, four years down the line, you know, he will win an ATP finals or before his career is said and done, I do believe he will win this title in terms of just because I think his game is so complete. And it's just, even if it's the most non, even if it's not the most natural surface for him, it does seem like he has all the tools in his game to put it all together and, you know, win this. Do you, uh, would, would you agree with that? Sorry, come again. <laughs> I got lost again. In terms of like him, if you were to predict, would he win an ATP Finals uh, before ah, the end of his career? Like okay. probably, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I I would say so. Yeah. Um, actually, we we're yeah. just talking. I think um, just a couple of days ago in one of these talking tennis streams, we just um were sort of comparing him to Nadal in that regard. And you know, Nadal yeah. of course never won it. He made two finals, I think. And um, Nadal only has one indoor heart title as well in his career. And I think it's pretty clear that Alcaraz should have a lot more. Mm-hmm. Are they going to be ATP finals? I would assume so. You know, at some point he should probably get this done. Maybe when Djokovic is no longer around, because it could be hard yeah, with yeah. Novak. But yeah, if yeah. he plays the next gen, and again I said next gen, of course he's already won next gen. But if he plays the ATP finals like fifteen more times, I think it's very very likely that he's going to win it at least once. Yeah. I definitely think so. And, uh, um, and you know, I mean, I guess if we just look at it, he was 47 and four after he won Wimbledon and he had six titles. And since then he's 18 and eight, obviously in some enough good performances in there to, to, you know, make it still a pretty good season overall. But, you know, it, it is, uh, it, I think it's just a natural sort of dip after you win a, after you, you know, you win a major, you go through some different, uh, you have to, you know, deal with the expectations, the pressure a little bit again. He also struggled with some physical issues as well. Yeah. Um, towards once the U.S. Open was done, or even at, at times during the during the U.S. Open. So I think, uh, I I think overall, we no one should be really like panicking about Alcaraz yeah. and kind of the 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 way that he's 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 headed next year because, I mean, also we haven't seen him play in Australia, and that just him being back in the mix there with the rest of the field is just going to make it so much more of an interesting event than we, what we had this year. So I think, I think there's a, there's quite a lot to look ahead to in terms of. Yeah. And the longer of season as well, which, um, yeah, yeah we'll see. I mean, how uh, he comes out, uh, you know, from, from that, because in 2021, well, let me try not to mix up my... There was this one off-season, basically, where he just uh, delivered in terms of, you know, the physical improvement that yeah, he did. 2021 into 2022. 21 into 22, yeah. I was I was thinking of 20 into 21, but it would have been um, a lot too early. But yeah, that was the one where he, like, grew so much muscle and strength. Yes. That was the, the one off-season that we really saw for Alcaraz since he became a top player. And then, yeah. of course, there was no off-season because he was injured and he comes back in the um, South American clay. So, um, yeah, I think this is still very much uncharted territory because we have only seen one from him. And that one was, you know, lots of growth. Uh, He really, uh, along with his team, used these six or seven weeks or however long it was. He he really used it to the best possible extent and, uh, yeah, just came up uh, as a much better player. 
So I'm uh, hoping that um, we will get some sort of development as well during that swing. We've seen him pull it off before, you know, not play a warm-up before the Australian Open and still look good there. He lost in the five sets to Berrettini, of course, in the third round, which for the time, uh, you know, where he was in his career at that point, it was a very good result. And yeah, um, yeah I don't think the courts suit him all that much either, especially with the way they played in the 2023 edition. But uh, yeah, I, I, I like the ability to adjust recently. And if he's serving like this in Australia, it should also really help him. I don't think he'll be my number one favorite to win Australia. Mm-hmm. I can already say that. I mean, my number yeah. one favorite to win Australia is going to be Novak Djokovic. But I think he'll clearly yes. be in that second tier of contenders. Yeah, I think most people will agree with that for sure. Um, and then also, you know, just in, in in terms of things to maybe work on, improve during the during the off season, it's just more about finding that balance again between you know being being the fastest player on tour, relying on your relying on the athleticism and fitness, and then you know kind of finding that balance between the the offense, picking the right shots at the right time, and uh, you know not just going full throttle uh, on <laughs> and basically trying to get sucked into you know overplaying. That's kind of that's kind of maybe the only and then just keep working on the serve, you know, just just keep keep approaching this with the same sort of sort of mentality. And you know, I've heard some people say like he should have played less tournaments, but I don't personally buy into that because he played 17 tournaments this year. And it's very normal. I think people are just saying that because Djokovic plays than, yeah. yeah. Djokovic plays Djokovic 10 or 12 and 12, then, but that's not yeah. Yeah. I mean I mean he's in a very different stage of his career and exactly. It's uh, that's not really perhaps maybe the only one poor decision that he made was playing the hop and cup that I would not advise at all. But that's yeah. like the only one thing. And even in that one, he had made a commitment before, and you know, it is it's probably not something they'll do again. Is what I'll say. So yeah, I, I don't think scheduling himself. This year, actually, maybe if the Hopman Cup is just before the Olympics, but of course, then it will be a very different calendar, right? So it it requires different things from you. But yeah, this year, both him and Rune playing the Hopman Cup was just, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely questionable for sure. But but apart from that, in terms of like the events that he picked and he played, I mean, it's not, he played, just played all the mandatory events and he played like, you know, one 500 and on clay to 50 and to and... warm up at the beginning of the season yeah. so that it's was really... okay as well yeah yeah i don't think there were any scheduling errors really and then yeah if any, if someone is expecting him to play 10 events a year yeah that's maybe something that he's going to do at 35 or 36 when he sort of ends yes. that's right i mean right now <laughs> it's it's still very much you know developing getting experience it's it's normal for him to play 17 i don't think it's really that high i mean there no. are lots of players who have played 30 this year so yeah yeah for sure and then and then obviously there were a lot of positives in the matches against medvedev and and Rublev, especially and you know in terms of just yeah i mean the some of the shot making the defense looked a lot more settled in um the patience from the back of the court was 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 definitely there a lot in times and we saw him really stealing a lot of points you know, on the defense and the serve continued to work very well for him and he managed to close the net extremely well against Medvedev and sort of use the same tactics that he did in Wimbledon and, you know, where, where also the, the the court slick and low bouncing and definitely, you know, even even sort of helped him in this matchup. Um, you know, was Daniil, was Daniil, Daniil at his 100% probably mentally given that he had already qualified 
probably not but still like it was it was it was by no means met with them not giving a full effort or you know being completely motivated i still think he he was and i just think alcaraz really outplayed him so that's kind of my take on it yeah um the serve return edge that we thought was going to be there and like super fast in their conditions wasn't really there because carlos was serving so well all week and yeah the drop shot probably not much time to play it but he was still abusing the positioning of Medvedev. he was still um going to the net quite a lot and just really being flawless there i want to see if these um things that you mentioned you know, regarding the steel percentage and like how he's able to use that speed and athleticism to get back into the point. I wonder if that still holds up when he plays Sinner next. It's not yes. something that was there against Djokovic, really, because it was Alcaraz in control of the most of the points. Uh, there were a few rallies like this, especially the the game at 2-3 that, that we've been mentioning sort of time and time again, where uh, this was like what I wanted to see all match from Alcaraz, you know, for, for this match to be competitive. Whereas, um, yeah, actually the, the one against, um, yeah, I, I just want to see if, if that really holds up against Sinner because that's been the main rival who has just been able to crush through the Alcaraz forehand and um, just not allow him to get back into any points. And we were also like, we had some doubts regarding Alcaraz's approach in that one. So definitely want to see yeah. that, that match up anytime soon. Uh, but yeah, for 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 now, I mean, for 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 what I thought he was going to do on these courts, I think he was definitely much better than that in matches two and three, and certainly against Medvedev, I think that was the the standout performance for me. Just the fact that he was able to get back to, um, yeah, get back to Wimbledon, Indian Wells, get back to these sort of matches against Medvedev, where it just seems like he is probably one of the worst matchups for Daniel on the tour. And um, yeah, it wasn't more of the US Open stuff, or it also wasn't, um, yeah, that that indoor serve edge that we thought was going to be there, just like we thought at Wimbledon, maybe Medvedev is going to keep it close because, yeah, he's just going to serve out of his mind. And that didn't really happen. Alcaraz was dictating in a lot of points on return as well. So um, yeah, that, that these two performances certainly were good enough to make us think that the semi was also going to be close. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, in the center matchup, we have seen him do it successfully for a few sets. And we've seen him do it, for instance, the first time that they played each other in Paris, more of a slower indoor court. And then also in at the tour level. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I know your face. Yeah. <laughs> and then also in the, in the Indian Wells match um, that they played earlier this year, he was also stealing quite a lot of points there. And Sinner sort of didn't have the serve edge that... Indian know, Wells, some... right? Yes. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean conditions like these. It's clay. It's clay. Basically, it's going to be very interesting. <laughs> Sandpaper, yeah. I think uh, some people have called it Medvedev probably. Uh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The hard courts at Indian Wells are, you know, the slowest and grittiest and highest bouncing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just very good for clay quarters, basically. Yes, um, but but yes, no, no, you're right. Like all these matches, you know, him against him against Djokovic, him against Medvedev, him against. Sinner, I would even throw him and Zverev in there. These are all like kind of mutsy matches at the minute, and the main the main player that you're going to gravitate towards is is going to be a lot of for a lot of points in these matches is going to be Alcaraz with the way that he plays and his creativity and his his uh, I guess style where he just has so many different options uh, that you know at times it, it can kind of get him in trouble, but it can also work really well in his favor as well. So that's. That's definitely um what is 
driving the top of the men's game right now is these four players kind of being very close to one another in terms of especially with Sinner getting so much better in the last two or three months after the US Open and now all of a sudden it sort of feels like Medvedev is actually the one that sort of has more questions to to answer with the three losses that he's had to Sinner and then also the you know the matchup against against Alcaraz and then obviously Djokovic just being Djokovic right so I think it uh, it it just makes for a very exciting top four and by that they've really separated themselves that kind of every match that they're playing against one another feels like must see TV right now yeah and I hope that Rune will join these four in 2024 with like a more healthy season simply because of course the second half of the year was kind of wasted for him after Wimbledon but um, I think people also tend to forget that he was actually making significant progress in the first half of 2023 until that happened and until Wimbledon it was pretty good for him so so yeah if if, especially if we would get a slam final next year with two of the three Alcaraz, Sine, Rune I think that would actually sort of move men's tennis forward you know and not just be Djokovic beating one more uh, next gen player which is fine you know yeah. um of, of course he's he's absolutely the goat but um yeah i think that would be like a start of changing of the guard and then yeah it's it's a phrase that we've heard so many times in tennis by now but but like that would be a yeah. proper moment for me if if two of these played or another youngster i mean i'm not excluding another youngsters from the other youngsters yeah. from this but you know these are the ones that are most realistic yeah. And then I also thought it was very revealing that Djokovic, you know, kind of said that after he won the first match against uh, against Runa and, you know, all the physical efforts that he had in Paris too, he knew that he just needed that one win and he had to work really hard for it against Runa to get to clinch the year at number one. And after that, he was kind of in and out in terms of his concentration and focus, you could argue. And, you know, I still played at a pretty decent level the next two matches, but nothing close to what he played after that in terms of the new gears that he showed and the way he was able to really, uh, you know, just <laughs> completely dominate uh, afterwards. So it just like, we, I, I guess what what fans, there's kind of a mix of emotions right now when it comes to this Djokovic dominance where some people are just like, wow, it's so great to see these, to see this one man dominate and, you know, play just this sublime, you know, supreme performances. Because as far as Djokovic is concerned, this has to go down as one of his best, you know, kind of semifinal final performances back to back. You know, in a row to win to win a big title. I mean, obviously, there's other contenders like 2019 Australia, what he was able to do to, against Puy and Nadal, and then 2016 yeah, but it's Luca Puy. And... But it's Luca Puy. Yes, and, yes. Um, but I mean, in terms of like him, I, I singularly know. great, like just locked in, like not make, making any errors and upping the risk profile. I would say, yeah. I mean, I mean, just the the combination of those six sets, and then plus the the Federer Murray one in 2016 and then honestly all these year-end championships as well like the 2015 against Nadal and Federer back-to-back Wawrinka and Nadal in 2013 and then probably this one but it's I just... honestly don't think I think this one was the most impressive like I, this... I think so like yeah. like, like like amongst I I know some people like because I've gotten a lot of a lot, like I, I mentioned that on Twitter and I you know I honestly got like a lot of people just being like how can you compare this to back then when it was just you know, Nadal and it was Nadal and Federer, and now now it's just two 20 year olds. And so a lot of people like are very just conflated right now. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, is Djokovic really that good, or is it, is there's actually like something wrong with a lot of these young players that it's like now the fourth or fifth generation that's basically being and 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 to be fair, like the scar tissue really hasn't built up because all these three guys, Runa, Sinner, and Alcaraz have now beaten him this year. And yeah. you know, Runa and Alcaraz's case, they have two wins against him. 
and you know at one point led the head to head to one and you know sinner you know finally finally getting that one win was still very massive for him so yeah, and it was it, just it, zero three it wasn't zero six like against Medvedev yeah yeah I think uh, in a lot of cases like people are just sort of working under the assumption that Djokovic has lost half a step or something like that you know because of his age but I actually don't we haven't know seen if it. he has yeah, yeah I actually we haven't seen it has. like on the court so that's the he's so much more crazy, like and, and complete like, can conserve yes. energy can shorten the points serves you know 100 times better than before so yeah I, I'm actually not even sure that he's a worse player now than in no, like you know no, five six years ago five six years I guess maybe not the most fortunate choice of words because that wasn't a particularly strong period for Novak but yeah I don't think we've really seen him head to that physical decline or like you know the fact that his movement worsened I don't think we've had that really so yeah, yeah he's a monster and Honestly, of these sort of two perform, you know, combos of performances that you mentioned, back-to-back performances, I actually think this was probably the most impressive one. Yeah, and then also just given that he's giving 15, 16 years to these guys, like, and then just you know coming out on top, basically not not really showing even that half step of, like you know maybe you can argue like you'd have to really nitpick, you'd have to be like, oh, he's yeah. a touch less explosive than he was ten years ago, but it's like. You know, was he serving this well 10 years ago? Was he, you know, was he coming to the net and finishing points? Was his forehand plus what was his serve and serve plus one this good, you know, back then? So it's like he's made all these improvements and gains over the last five to 10 years that just make up so much for whatever half step that he may have lost, if there even is one. So yeah. it's, uh, it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like you, you can't really even see him slowing down just because he's played... You know, he's playing 10 or 12 tournaments every year and he's basically winning half of them that he enters. And so at, at this point, it's like, you know, a lot of people are asking, like, does he peak for the slams? He only doesn't really peak. But it's like, honestly, he's winning two or three Masters events every year too. And he's It's like, only clay this year where he was, well, besides yeah. Ron Garros, where he was a little shaky. But other than that, I mean, he barely lost a match. It's like Monte Carlo and like Belgrade or Banja Luka where you really feel like he's the most vulnerable. And then the rest of the year... He's, yeah, that's, he's that's like happened like twice in a basically row now, winning. Yeah. <laughs> He's basically winning almost everything he plays. So now I'm not really seeing the any evidence. And and we're, we're like looking really hard for it. You know, like we're on, mm-hmm. we're like looking for it every single match and we still don't see it. So <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like it would, it would be very apparent by now if we saw it. And we're just not. So <laughs> I don't know what to say. Yeah, he he is absolutely, I think, to me, as good as as in his prime. This is still prime Novak Djokovic. Uh, maybe uh, you know there are some maybe uh, like the emphasis is on other assets sometimes than in 2011, 2015. Maybe 2011, you know, the streak that he had, and 2015, the fact that he only had one event where he didn't make the final, right, right all year, like that. These two things could take that these seasons higher than than this one. But still, this one was absolutely ridiculous as well. Yeah, and then obviously it's a much different story in best of five. Like he might ride out a low or a physical dip for a set, yeah, set and a half. He, and he then, does, and he then does. All of a sudden yeah. he just, you know, all of a sudden he'll still just find another gear. So it's yeah. not, uh, it's just, it doesn't really matter. It's it's one of the most adaptable athletes ever. So it's not, it's, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, I would say getting a win against him right now is is still massive, massive. Uh, and it should not be discredited just because one guy is 20 and one guy is is 36 because you just look at the level it's yeah it's, and even when he's like off on a certain day like i don't know talon rixpor almost beat him in paris because well 
probably mostly due to the stomach bug that Djokovic had. But still, like just yeah. getting a win over Djokovic is one of the most important achievements right now in tennis. You <laughs> yeah, know, he he might have been horrible against Lorenzo Sonego in Vienna, but anytime we we have Lorenzo Sonego now, we mentioned that a Vienna win that he has against Novak Djokovic. No one cares that you know it was a one of the worst showings from Djokovic ever. Really, yeah. No one cares about that. It's still such a massive thing to beat Novak Djokovic. And uh, yeah, guys, welcome to the Novak Weekly. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, it's just because <laughs> I, I feel like because we're tying it into. Yeah, yeah. Generation, no, I think, I think yeah. it's important to bring it up just because, well, I mean, what can you really say about the guy anymore that just hasn't really been <laughs> been yeah. said before? But I think, uh, but I think, uh, yeah. So I mean, in terms of, in terms of this, this Alcaraz season, I guess this is basically his last. I mean, this is his his last event. Now it's it's kind of done. No more Davis Cup. Of course, Djokovic and Sinner still have Davis Cup, so we might get to see another matchup between them, which should be pretty fun next Saturday if we get that. But uh, yeah, I guess. Um, do we have anything Iga Shriantek related? Uh, we might talk about the awards um, that the WTA has, you know, sort of just announced the nominees for. I think we're not just gonna do everything because, well, most improved player of the year, comeback player of the year. I don't think it really ties into Shriantek at all. But there are two awards that do. One of them mm-hmm. is the player of the year, and the other is the coach of the year. So regarding the player of the year, we have uh, five nominees, I think, uh, but only two matter right. really, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, sh- I, sh- I should still read out all of them. And of course, the the, the two that matter, um, the two that I think are, are definitely the most important are Igesh Fiontek and Arina Sabalenka, whereas um, the the other ones are, let me quickly find that. Yeah, Coco Goff, Jessica Pegula, Elena Rybakina. Oh, actually six nominees as well with uh, Marketa Vondroushova. Uh, it's quite interesting. So um, basically, I mean, as I said, it, it's just Sabalenka and Shvontek, really. And um, I think we even maybe addressed this on the show a few times. But do you think that Shvontek should be the one receiving this? Yeah, because I do think the last two tournaments showed that she is still the best player in the world. And because she got that year in number one ranking, because she beat Sabalenka in the process to do it. And just because of how strong uh, of an effort it was to come back after the US Open and win those titles, I have to give it to her. I definitely think she is the player of the year, strictly if we're basing it on results. Yes, of course, if you have other factors, you know, when it comes to like, you know, what what else you'll remember the season for, then I don't know, maybe depending on which players you prefer, you can make a case for that. But just objectively, based on results, based on on the court, I think it should go to Igor Shvantec. Me too. I think if someone says Sabalenka, it is justifiable like you could actually argue for that the other nominees probably not because of what she said like it's not an award uh you know who improved the most this year out of these players it's actually just the award of yeah who had the best season i think Shvantek definitely stole it with beijing and wt finals she wasn't really close before beijing after beijing we sort of had the idea that maybe if she wins the wt finals it becomes the conversation and she did it of course in like the one of the best you know uh, manners possible and also the fact that she beat sabalenka along the way pretty comfortably i think it also plays into it and uh, yeah, just the the whole excellence of that display. And it, it's not recency bias when we say that, because a lot of the time with the uh, awards WTA or ATP, people just look at the last two months because that's what has been the most recent and what is most important to you. But it's not just recency bias. It's just the fact that before the WTA finals, it was really close. 
if Sabalenka yeah. wins the US Open, and let's say all the other things still happen, so like Svantec gets number one, beats her in Cancun, I think then it, it's a conversation, and I actually probably would have picked Arena. But the fact that she hasn't won a title since Madrid, the fact that her second half of the season was just a little more sketchy, the fact that, yeah, Svantec got six titles, right? And Sabalenka got three. Um, yeah. I, I think it's enough for me uh, to to pick Świątek as well. I don't think it, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that because I'm Polish. I'm not doing that because we have the podcast. But I, yeah. I do believe that she actually has had a stronger overall season than Sabalenka. Definitely not the stronger first half of the year. But if we look at it as a whole, yeah. And then the yeah. coach of the year, where, of course, Tomasz Wiktorowski is nominated. This one, I think, is so much closer. I'm just going to read out all the other nominees. So it's um, Brad Gilbert and Pere Riba as well for their work with uh, Koko Goff, which uh, is actually not a long period. It's just June to October, more or less. Uh, Wiktorowski, of course, the whole year. Uh, Anton Dubrov with Sabalenka the whole year. Emil Miska with um, Muchova from April onwards. Uh, Stefano Vukov with um, uh, Rybakina the whole year as well. And Raymond Sluiter the, um, uh, with Elena, Alina Svitolina from March 2023. But it's basically mm. the whole year because Svitolina was not playing before uh, before then. So, mm. um, yeah. These, these are, are good the, picks. These, these are, are the six nominees. Yeah. These are all very good. Yep. I think there are two who are like not really in contention and four of them who are like very arguable and I think you can justify either of them. Yeah, like honestly the Pararriba and Brad Gilbert thing is is pretty convincing to me. Um just given the you know, I mean the huge summer and the huge jump that, that Goff had and just you know, sort of like after the loss to Sophia Cannon and, and Wimbledon, you know, there were some I guess concerns about her trajectory and her kind of status at the top of the game and if she can actually win a slam in the next one or two years. Um and so the the fact that she was able to just quickly change that narrative around uh with not that much time in between and then the the way that she was able to win Washington, Cincinnati, US Open and still finish the year pretty strong, semis in Beijing and and in uh WTA finals. I think it's it's very uh it, it makes for a very convincing case. And obviously with Gilbert having the resume that he had with Agassi and with with Roddick and just the whole the whole combination and the you know the the way everything unfolded at the US Open, I, I think it's a pretty convincing pretty, pretty convincing case for, for that one as well as the as well as others, honestly. Yeah, I think Vukov and Miska are the ones who don't really work for me. Like they are strong nominees, but they just aren't as good as the other four. And yeah. um, actually, um, I just made a post like an hour ago on Twitter with like who I think should win the awards. And mm. actually, um, uh, Eva in the comments brought up something interesting that I feel like has sort of shifted my opinion here. Um, when, when it comes okay. to the coach, by the way, I didn't pick anyone. I just said question mark because I had no idea who to pick out of the four options. But she basically said that Reba Gilbert, you know, it's just two or three months, right? And this is supposed to be coach of the year. So, yeah. Yeah, but sort of. Like, um, are Does it there... require, does the award require you to be... No, no, no. Like but, that's, but I mean, that's are you there had most rewards... of your results? Then is that is I that know. warranted? But are there re- are, are there results uh, like their achievements with Coco good enough in two or three months for me to um, sort of value them over someone else's work for the whole season? 
I I'm actually gonna say no. And um, the other the other um, sort of um, the yeah the other nominees that I really like are Viktorovsky, but I'm actually yeah. gonna exclude him on the very same grounds because I mostly want to reward him for Beijing and WTA finals. Whereas before that, I actually had some issues, right, with the tactical approach of Świątek in at the US Open in Tokyo. Uh, maybe the serving as well, that could also play into it uh, because at the beginning of the year, we saw it improve quite a lot. So that's that's a plus for him, of course. But mostly yeah. I want uh, I want to reward him for what Świątek did at the WTA finals and also in Beijing. So for that reason, I'm actually focusing on Sluter and um, Dubrov now. And uh, yeah, I'm not really sure who I would choose. Probably Dubrov, I guess, uh, just for the overall work that he's done with uh, with Sabalenka. Well, over the years, but specifically in 2023, just getting her to really, um, yeah, just have her have the best season of her career by a country mile, win a slam, and um, almost make number one, <laughs> come very close to that. And just the, the, the overall consistency of Sabalenka's year was incomparable. Uh, you know, along uh, like looking at her previous campaigns, so I um, I think that's that's the one that I'm sort of siding with for now. But as I said, I have four potential picks here that I feel like are all very very justifiable. And if you're picking either one of them, I cannot really say um, that I that I can that I you know that I don't like the pick or something. But yeah, the, this is a very strong set of nominees for sure. It kind of makes me wonder who's going to be there on the ATP side as well. But I think Darren Cahill probably should win it. Yeah, Darren Cahill will probably be my pick, not knowing the nominees right now. But also the biomechanics trainer of uh, Rina Sabalenka. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe he deserves a shout too. Because of like actually the you know issues with the serve that Sabalenka had in 2022. And then he's kind of been a presence in Sabalenka's box throughout the season as well. So maybe he's having more of an impact on the technical side. I don't know. Just something I thought of just now because I remember that video that Jack, one of our friends from um, Talking Tennis and on the online, on the line podcast did with him. It was a very kind of detailed technical mm-hmm. yeah. um, changes that Sabalenka made um, with her serve. And obviously we saw the rewards of that. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then and then the Sloiter is a, is a good pick, but also I think Svitolina is already nominated for Comeback Player of the Year as well, which mm, would be a good yeah. shout out there. Yeah, there's Pavlichenkova, mm. Svitolina, yeah. uh, Vondroshova, Mukhova, and Sia. <laughs> Maybe Sviantek's comeback from number two to number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think for uh, yeah. the Comeback Player of the Year is actually another award where like all the contenders are worth it. And maybe oh, yeah, Pavlyuchenkova yeah. stands out a little bit, but the other yeah. four are just, yeah, I mean, I I, I would love for either one of them to get the award. Of course, that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, of course, because you also had Vondrosova winning a slam. So that has to be a huge factor. And then Mohova. So really, yeah, it's like, it's really strong, these awards for WTA this year. This year overall, but player of the year is like, I'm very certain is Fiontech. Yeah, I, I think she'll get it. I think she'll get it 100%. Coach yeah. is, it's tough to say. Yeah, I mean, who is who is tough. voting? All nominees were voted on by WTA registered coaches, but then who votes for the actual award? I guess the same, right? Probably WTA registered coaches. So yeah, yeah. It, it, there's no telling. Do we know who won it last year? Was, was it Victorowski? wasn't Viktorovsky actually. He got, no. he didn't get it. Um, 
who got it? Uh, Jesus. I can't remember now, but it was, I don't remember. It was um, definitely not him. Let me, let think... me Google that. Um, was it Vukov? No, Vukov wouldn't get it, right? Um, who could have gotten that in, in 2022? Because, because I thought if, yeah. I know I it's a it thing be... that it wasn't Viktorovsky because ah, people it was keep David mentioning Witt. that. Oh, David Witt. I wouldn't have yeah, guessed that. Yeah, the coach that. of Jessica Pagula. Pagula. Yeah, I wouldn't have okay. guessed that. I think Viktorovsky clearly deserved it in 2022, yeah, but it, it shouldn't so influence us in 2023, right? It's the Robert okay. Lewandowski Ballon d'Or thing. I don't know how much you know about football, but basically in 2020, uh, um, they decided to not to hand out the Ballon d'Or because there uh -huh. was a pandemic. It was a ridiculous decision. And that's why that year Robert Lewandowski didn't get it. Um, and he was like yeah. by far the only contender, really. Whereas in 2021, people just wanted to give it to him, you know, because mm -hmm. he missed out in 2020. And and actually, he didn't get it. He, he was second behind Messi. Uh, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the, the same thing okay. where people, because Viktorovsky missed out in 2022, they want to give it to him now, even though right now he's not clearly the best contender. But I think he was in 2022, definitely. Yeah. Interesting. What are the other awards uh, on the WTA? Is um, that what the, the other categories? Newcomer? Yeah, you've got most improved, newcomer, and um, what else? I want, I'm forgetting one. Oh, doubles team of the year, of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so most improved, you've got Xin Wang, Lin Zhu, Katie Bolter, Kim Van Zheng, and Jasmine Paolini. And newcomer of mm, the year. I like, got... I like uh -huh. Lin Zhu. I think she's like a sneaky good pick here. That's my pick, actually. Uh, <laughs> that, that was my pick in the Twitter thread as well because, um, because i was impressed with how she did also in the wta elite trophy and then also like at yeah. the start of the year and just like what a big jump she made right late like, bloomer as well uh whereas yeah. some other peaks like kin van Zheng was already this good in 2022 yeah. i think so basically that's really right yeah exactly even though she almost broke the top 10 but still it's like yeah it would have made yeah. more sense it wasn't year. that much of an improvement to me paulini i was close no. to thinking about her but i think she kind of lacked that one title for example on the other hand, Katie Boulter only has a title, and that's like really her nomination to me. So I don't really think it's enough. And uh, I think Zinyu Wang is the other good pick for this. For this, so either Lin Zhu or, or Zinyu Wang. Mm -hmm. And in newcomer of the year, I think it's very clear. But I don't know. Maybe you're not you're gonna think otherwise. So we have Mira Andreeva, Diana Schneider, uh, Peyton Stearns, Alina Vanessian, and Linda Noshkova. Yeah, this one's not really close. It has to be Mira Andreeva. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's pretty obvious, I think, this one. Uh, I, I totally agree with this. I, I think the others just didn't really come close to the sort of impact that she had. And also how out of, well, out of nowhere, you know, she was a great junior, of course, Australian Open final. But that also sort of plays into her year and, you know, getting from that Australian yeah. Open final to Madrid, Ron Garros, Wimbledon. Maybe she didn't exactly follow it up after Wimbledon, but, you know, it, it's not like she won't soon and... Yeah, that, that run was just incredible and much better than for me than all the other nominees who sort of had their moments but were never really that uh, much of a story. And yeah. I think I think in terms of end of season wrap and in terms of the finals, I think we basically covered it all in this show. So Yep. This was this was quite a good episode, I would say. We we, we covered quite a lot of ground and uh, stay tuned also next week because we may ha be having a guest. Um, just a little tease. 
<laughs> yeah, just in case things. our plans fall through, we we're not yeah. gonna say who it is, and you know that it will definitely happen. But yeah, we might we might have that. Yeah, it's not gonna mm-hmm. be anyone, you know. It's not gonna be Dario Abramovich, but it's gonna be an interesting sort of tennis fan, just like yeah. just like us, and um, someone who's gonna bring a very inter- a, a new perspective, hopefully, on one of the players that we are really focusing on here. Yep, and we'll leave it at that. And uh, yeah, just make sure to like and um, subscribe. I guess add add the podcast to your feeds. That way you're notified every time we release another episode. And keep up all the great comments. The Twitter account has been has been fun. We're reaching almost 500 followers there. And um, yeah, it's been it's been quite a fun project ever since we started doing this in Madrid. We've got 15 episodes now in the book. And yeah, just thanks to all of our listeners for keeping it going. And also thanks to you, Damien, for the the time every time we the time and the good discussions and the the topics and the way we we diverge into other players and it's and then always somehow bring it back to Egon Carlos. So that's always fun. Yeah, that's been a very that's been a very fun run so far, uh doing the show. Fifteen episodes by now since uh what was it, May, maybe, maybe June. Yep. May May or June when we started out. And uh yeah, let's keep going. Yep, let's let's keep going and uh with that, yeah, thanks and be a good listen. <laughs>